This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Furman de Brabander to discuss his book, Life After Privacy, Reclaiming Democracy in a Surveillance Society, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. If governments and corporations are able to mine our entrenched culture of sharing to invade privacy, down to target creating an algorithm to find out which shoppers are in the second trimester of pregnancy? What happens to democracy? What does democracy look like without privacy or very little of it? What if the citizenry cares little about privacy or is unwilling to protect it? If surveillance is here to stay, what are the prospects for individual autonomy, citizenship, democratic discussion, or deliberation? Life After Privacy argues that we should not focus on protecting individual privacy. Privacy is not our best hope for ensuring a democratic future. Instead, we should channel Hannah Arendt and focus on the public realm and how it supports political freedom. Dr. Furman de Brabander is a professor of philosophy at Maryland Institute College of Art and the author of two previous books, Do Guns Make Us Free? Democracy and the Armed Society from Yale 2015, and Spinoza and the Stoics, Power, Politics, and Passions from Bloomsbury in 2007. He writes social and political commentary for the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe, Baltimore Sun, Salon, The Atlantic, and The New Republic. And I'm delighted to welcome him to the New Books Network. So Furman, we've talked before about uh, your book about guns in other uh, uh, conferences, et cetera. Uh, I love your work. How is it that you came to write about the subject of surveillance? So tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book. How long were you thinking about it and where did that thinking come from? Well, my answer is twofold to that question. On one hand, it started uh, in my last book when I was writing, which was about the gun rights movement. Uh, One of the arguments put forth by the forth by the gun rights movement in America is that we require all these guns, including assault rifles, to rebuff uh, government tyranny. 
And I started to think hard about what that tyranny looked like. And I was very impressed with uh, Foucault's Discipline and Punish, where he talks about the panopticon and how surveillance is a very insidious and devastating form of of government oppression that uh, I was arguing guns can do really nothing about. Um, so at that point, I was very much, you know, in the mindset that, well, privacy is hugely important for democracy and freedom. And then the story also it starts with Edward Snowden um, when he revealed back in 2013 that the NSA was engaged in mass surveillance of U.S. citizens. I stormed into my political philosophy class irate and just went on a tirade, and my students were wholly unimpressed. These 20-year-old digital natives, their eyes glazed over, and they just didn't get it. They didn't understand why privacy was important. They didn't appreciate it. And so I spent a long time, you know, several years trying to argue for its importance. And I decided initially my book was going to be a defense of privacy. Uh, I teach students across the spectrum, uh, adult students, you know, 20-year-olds. And then I also have my own teenagers coming up. So I, I, that was my research body on the topic. And, and I decided after a while you know, looking at the landscape on the topic that instead of a defense of privacy, what about writing about the possibility that privacy is doomed? And if it is, then what are the prospects for democracy and freedom in that case? That seems to be something that I thought was in order. And then especially with the pandemic, although my book is written just at the verge of the pandemic, the pandemic seemed to make the case even stronger because, you know, we had become all the more reliant on these invasive digital services through the pandemic. And actually the book really reads the way that your mind was working because although you tell the reader in the introduction what's gonna happen, once you get into the book, you're reading, you're reading, you're pulling us along in terms of the importance of privacy, its embeddedness in the American narrative. And then you kind of get to page 100 and you say, actually, maybe that's not true. Maybe privacy is new and maybe we shouldn't accord it as much, uh, you know, attention as, as we're giving it. Maybe we need to look somewhere else. Um, you're talking about your different audiences in the classroom, which is great. And I actually find that a lot of authors who teach the range of students, um, are able to communicate really well to the reader uh, from different disciplines. Who's the audience for the book? Who were you hoping to reach? Were you hoping for this to be a uh, crossover to trade? Uh, how, how were you thinking about the audience? And I know it's hard to engage with the audience during COVID, but I'm wondering what kind of events you've done and what the reaction to the book has been. Well, I, I guess I, I don't know that I had any particular audience in mind. I did not write this as a scholarly book because I don't really write for a scholarly audience. I, I you know, I'm committed to public philosophy. Um, that's always the way I've written, well, for the last 10 years at least. Um, and I was trying, I wanted to write this argument for a general population, you know. Um, I think just for the citizenry, the way my argument ended uh, towards the conclusion. So definitely, a, you know, a, a broader audience. I was able to do a couple of um, online events, um, a book launch through the Pratt Library here in Baltimore, which is our central library. I've done a couple podcasts like this. Um, it has not been easy. Um, 
but this is this is the way it is this year. Um, and you know, I've gotten generally a good response. Um, surprisingly, a couple of European outlets were rather positive about it, which I was shocked because the Europeans are very <laughs> pro privacy. But I immediately sent it over there because I wanted to needle them and get their attention. Privacy advocates in the states are not happy with my argument, um, although I haven't incurred their wrath too much at the moment. But I knew that going in, I was open-eyed going in that that privacy advocates would not be pleased. Well, in a way, you're kind of telling a story of your own transformation. You were a privacy advocate. You were irate. You you were upset about Snowden and and the, and being listened to, and you were. Uh, concern that the students didn't get it. And it seems like that part of the virtue of the book is taking people who may have that opinion, who may come into it valuing privacy, fetishizing privacy in a liberal democracy. And if if I understand the the, the motive, the, the way it's written is meant to sort of explain all of that and then, you know, turn, turn people around. Um, Let's start with the uh, the story, maybe that that you are trying to turn around. Um, a lot of scholars, journalists, judges assume that privacy figures prominently in our national story and beyond; that it's embedded in the common law and the political ideas on which the country is built. So, both the sort of the legal and the philosophical. Um, uh, foundations. So give us that story. Give us the short version of, of why it is that privacy matters so much in, um, uh, in a democracy. Well, as you put it a minute ago, this book was a learning experience for me, you know, and by the way, I still like to point out, I do care about privacy. I, I'm worried for it. Uh, but you're right. I, I went into this thinking, well, isn't this the initial, the initial, uh, thing that struck me, paradox, if you will, is that, you know, growing up and living in America, we hear that privacy is supposedly important, and yet people, and may perhaps even the most important of our values, and yet people are so, you know, um, are so lax with it. And, you know, one point that I make in the book is that, you know, suburbia, which dominates the American landscape, is designed you couldn't des- you couldn't design a lived environment that better emphasizes the centrality of privacy than suburbia, and yet online we hardly care for it at all. But of course, the story of valuing privacy, you would think, goes back to the Constitution. And in the research, I I learned that you know there were some historians who insisted that privacy is a quintessential American virtue. One in particular argued that the history of America is a history of privacy. He talked about how the Puritans came here looking for privacy in terms of freedom from religion. The revolutionaries, the colonists were rebelling because of the British were invading their homes and their warehouses. And so privacy is at the center of our narrative. And yet when you look in the Constitution, the word doesn't come up. In fact, in looking at the legal scholarship, it doesn't come to be articulated as a right until 1890 by Louis Brandeis, who would be the Supreme Court justice later. He, he, with Samuel Warren, defines it as the right to be left alone. And interestingly, they were motivated by technology. Warren was upset that the photo, this new phenomenon called photojournalism had descended on his daughter's wedding, and he was indignant. And so they write a paper about the right of privacy. But the right of privacy was not 
still was very, you know, not hotly defended. It's not until the 1960s under another Warren, the Warren Court, Supreme Court in particular, uh, Justice Douglas was the most ardent defender. That's really when you see a lot, the, the right of privacy is appealed to over and over and over again. And you see that this right to privacy is carved out. The way Douglas puts it, he says that, okay, the privacy is not mentioned in the Bill of Rights, but it is implied by the first five or so, right? So we yeah. can assume it. And really, when you think about the Griswold case and you think of what, what Douglas is trying to do, he has a problem. He has a problem that Connecticut is regulating the birth control use by married people. And he can't find an enumerated right. I mean, it's right. back to the problem that Hamilton actually articulated. If you make a list, then everything else might be assumed to be in the government's control. So in a lot of ways, what Douglas is doing, in my mind, in Griswold, is not articulating a right of privacy. He's he's grasping at straws to create this penumbra argument that yeah. says, like, look, nobody mentioned birth control, but they meant stuff like that. That's yeah. part of due process. That's part of the Third Amendment. That's part of not searching your stuff, the Fourth Amendment. So it's funny to see these historians lay that out. Um, also mm -hmm. funny because the Puritans had no interest in religion being private. They wanted it to be public. So the, <laughs> I, the I, that's that's just a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a that's an us understanding of religion. Religion as a right to do something in private and to have your own beliefs uh, that could be different from the majority or even from the states. But that wasn't, I don't, in my reading of the Puritans, um, well, exactly. really what they were up to. And going over all this, what you're saying started me thinking, my gosh, this idea of privacy is a mess. It's a disaster. There is no coherence to it. It's all over the place. And that was my next task then as a philosopher was to really zero in on that and try and figure out now what is this thing called privacy? But the history was remarkable. I would also add that Roe v. Wade invokes the right to privacy, right? 1973 or two. Um, so uh, it is amazing how this was appealed to. Uh, one, one thing I would say about Douglas, though, that was kind of funny was in his decision or his, uh, what do you call it, his commentary uh, on that case, he quotes Thoreau. <laughs> he quotes Thoreau's essay on walking and the right to walk out into, or actually, I'm sorry, this was a case about, um, about vagrancy, excuse me, but yeah, this is, yeah. it was just amazing that he quotes Thoreau to spell out uh, an ideal of his, his definition of privacy. And that really was like an alarm went off in my head. I love Thoreau dearly, but there is no one more idealistic than Thoreau. And I thought, and frankly, a little bit privileged, you know, <laughs> and started me thinking, I wonder how much privacy is really an, uh, a privileged entity, you know, and sure enough, the history bears that out. Yeah. And, you know, something that really, it, it started as a low level simmer as I began the book and then it sort of crescendoed for me and it, and it maps on to what you just said. Not only is privacy uh, suspect, it's also really gendered. Uh, and yeah. and and it's gendered in the common law because marriage is not about protecting the privacy of individuals. It's uh, very very hierarchical. The ancients don't look at privacy as a way of 
enhancing people's autonomy in many ways, separating the public and the private realm is essential in order to keep women doing the things that hold up uh, children, old people, life and food while yeah. men can can be in the public sphere and this idea of a potent citizen and you you know you use that term or or the discussion of what goes on in one's house mm-hmm. these all beg the question of of a private domain in which you like who is the you it's a it's a male you can retreat and be nourished mm-hmm. by family so yeah. I, I i think right. that uh, obviously griswold and the 70s it's a big moment and it and it and for the court, some of them don't believe, they believe it's necessary to articulate it. And Griswold is the precedent that Roe depends upon almost entirely. Absolutely. So it's it's a very sticky, privacy is a very sticky uh, concept. Um, and I think that the, yeah, I have to say that the gender thing was the only thing that really kind of uh, simmered with me throughout the book. Yeah. And I wasn't quite sure where you stood on it. Oh, no, I, I that absolutely that occurred to me later on. My wife pointed that out in my chapter on Hannah Arendt, you know, distinguishing the public realm, and the private realm for the ancient Greeks. And it's pretty clear the private realm is the domestic space. And that's, you know, for women. So I, I think you're right. I think absolutely it's it's privacy is very much a gendered uh, right, a gendered privilege. You know, that's the way it's it's articulated in covert fashion. Uh, throughout, for sure. I agree. So before we go on to where I think you really, your heart is, which Mm -hmm. is moving beyond the fight about privacy, is there anything else you want to share about how this privacy narrative is is firmly interwoven into American narratives, uh, in more modern American narratives? Anything that we haven't covered? You know, I mean, it, it's. I would. I would like to point something out. Maybe it's premature, but it occurs to me on mentioning how in how ambiguous this term privacy is. It's very. Not only is it gendered, it's also very culturally specific. Um, my father-in-law is from Syria, and I, I was at a dinner table with him, him and his Arabic friends, and I asked what was the. Arabic word for privacy. And my God, I, and I started a fight that <laughs> went on because they didn't have an exact word. And I was, and then I was talking with a, with a colleague in China and he pointed out there's no single word for that. Even my own family in Belgium, they don't have a word for privacy in Dutch. The Dutch use the word privacy, literally the English word. So I, that was, I guess that was, that was pretty mind blowing, although not entirely surprising. Um, but about the American, so it, you know, I do think that, you know, in America, we have a very culturally specific notion of privacy and very high expectations of it, you know, oddly, because online we don't, but in our physical world, we do. And this is advertised in suburbia, which is, you know, we're drowning in space. I point out in the book how, you know, Bill McKibben points out since the 1970s, the house has the average home has grown by a third, and the household has diminished by a quarter. Right, so there's fewer people with more space, and we're just you know the new homes have exercise rooms and breakfast nooks and spa bathrooms. It's crazy how much space we expect and demand in our physical lives, right? Which so many countries around the world they don't have that. And then I had an example staring me in the face that I couldn't believe I 
ignored. But my own mother grew up in the west of Ireland. She was raised in the 1950s. She was raised in a cottage, two rooms, and they were good Catholics. So there were eight children in two rooms. And that made me really think hard about Glenn Greenwald, who was a journalist who helped Edward Snowden reveal the NSA surveillance. He wrote in his book this beautiful statement where he says, you need privacy to have dignity and autonomy and the right to dissent and to feel confident. And I started to read that and think, well, there is no no one more confident than my mother who will kick in the behind if, you know, she, she has no problem speaking her mind. And so I just thought there's something wrong with this insistence upon privacy. You know, I'm not sure how necessary it is for, for, you know, ego development and for autonomy and dignity and respect and the right to dissent, you know. Well, it also seems that in your example about the cottage and the suburbs and the breakfast nook, that, and perhaps it's the question begged by asking people of different cultures what words they use. I mean, some of this is about space. Yeah. Do I have space? You know, do, right. Can I, uh, I, I have a friend who wrote a novel and her family didn't know she did it. Okay. Mm. Can you do that? Well, yeah. uh, you know, and, and that also, I guess, goes back to, I never thought about Virginia Woolf and my friend. I'll have to, <laughs> but so she didn't have a room of her own, but she did it. So the question is, is it, and I think for you it is, is it to have the space to think, to be able to converse and engage in a particular way? that keeps democracy healthy and humans healthy. And like, you know, can you can you have the space to think, not just about politics, yeah. uh, without your own private bathroom? Or you know, are those things linked? And I think what you're saying is that uh, the American obsession with space and having your own private master suite bathroom yeah. because you can't possibly share with your children, that would somehow yeah. invade your privacy, is not what you're talking about. No. Um, and the and and when Douglas is talking in Griswold, uh, and especially when Goldberg is talking, his his uh, his opinion is also fascinating. They're interested in decision making about uh, your sexual behavior and how many children you you have. It's it's an internal decision. And that doesn't necessarily require you to have your own bathroom. So I, no. I think all of this language stuff is, is, is really interesting. And, and one of the things that you write in the book, and I'm just going to quote it, I don't do this a lot, but it's short. Our prevailing concept of privacy that dominates thinking about privacy and liberal democracy is philosophically tenuous at best, untenable at worst. And that's the kind of moment in the book in which everything switches mm-hmm. and you ask like, okay, so how could we be act as potent citizens? Mm-hmm. You know, how could we be your language self-determining citizens, even mm-hmm. it, under a surveillance state? So in a lot of ways, I think you take us to this place in which uh, I love the term digital native. Yeah, <laughs> It's not in my vocabulary, but it probably should be. But I also like the other term, digital citizens. So I think what yeah. you're saying is, how do we take these digital natives and make them into digital citizens? Yeah. Rather than getting rid of the surveillance, how can you do it despite that? And t- tell us a little bit about how you see uh, that. Um, first of all, if, if I haven't fully fleshed out your reasoning there, please do so. But what can we do? If we leave the surveillance state and we leave this culture alone, what would we do to... to to maintain democratic thinking? 
Well, I'm going to go back to the example of my mother and thinking, you know, about her case. And I, I forgot to point out that she also grew up in, in Catholic Ireland in the 50s, where you went to mass, you went to confession every Sunday, and the priest would not only would say, what did you do? He'd say, what were your intentions? So the oppression was deep. And you couldn't walk, my mother talks of walking down the village and all the curtains are opening. So it is remarkable that she came out such a strong-willed person. She moved to the States and living in Richmond, Virginia in the 50s and 60s, she actually contributes to, she helped, not, I mean, in some fashion, small fashion, Martin Luther King with his protest. So again, the idea that, you know, she was not cowed by it all. And I kept thinking, how is that? What is this? And it, it made me think like, well, that, you know, there is a lot that, you know, it made me think a couple things. First of all, it made me think, my mother would have to find her own mo- private moments. And they were not offered by a luxurious spa suite. Maybe she would stare at the wall <laughs> in her cottage. Maybe she'd go out in the, in, the, in, the, in the fields for a minute. You know, you have to create your own space. You could, but you also can make your own privacy. Privacy is something we have to make ourselves. So here's, here's where I really thought the notion of privacy was problem, problematic. So Brandeis and Warren define it as the right to be left alone. And I thought, well, when am I left alone? And if I'm left alone, isn't that largely up to me? And, and I started to think about Rousseau in the second discourse where he talks about amour de soi and amour propre. And I always get the confused, but one of them is the bad. There's one kind that's good and unself-reflective and, you know, just immediate but there's the other kind of self-love, which is mediated through the eyes of other people, where I praise, I value myself according to how other people see me. And guess what? You can carry that kind of pressure with you in the closet. Go in and close the door. You're st- Are you left alone? You're not. You're, you're allowing that to happen. And so the biggest problem I saw with privacy um, theory or the, you know, what privacy advocates were claiming is that it's really not up to me alone. There is something else that enables me to either create privacy, to to rebuff surveillance and the manipulation that comes with it, and that is community and you know community support, um, and public life. And so, ironically, I I started to think that well, it's not privacy that democracy requires. It's not the private realm. It's the public realm that it relies on. And so, we really need to start thinking about. What kind of public realm is this digital sphere where now democracy is waged? Um, and I was very, I, I ended up being very critical of it. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan of John Dewey and, and, and John Dewey, you know, in so many words argues, he has this beautiful quote uh, in the book, The Public and the Problems, where he says, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like democracy is community, right? Um, and he makes a very, you know, great, he makes a great case for the value and the importance of face-to-face, uh, communications. Uh, again, I, I was thinking of this beautiful quote from Montaigne in his essays where he points out now, of course he's French, so French people communicate with their hands, but Montaigne says, you know, you have to be able to see people essentially. You, You can communicate without words, how do they hold their shoulders? How do they hold their heads? Do they purse their mouth? Do they use their fingers, right? Of course, the French do all of that. So it started me 
thinking that really this, this digital sphere is a very poor replacement or substitute for the public realm. And there may even be something that dangerous in privacy theory insofar as it is arguing for isolation online. Because I think the isolation of our online culture is the problem. And I'll say one more thing and then hand it off to you. But I, I struck, uh, Zainab Tufexi points out in her, her book on Twitter and tear gas, she points out that, you know, researchers who were looking at Chinese censorship noted that they were surprised to see that so many, <laughs> that really a lot of commentary was allowed. And she says this kind of makes sense and wasn't censored. And she says that kind of makes sense because the Chinese government, you know, in a way, digital culture has served authoritarian governments very well. Before digital culture, they had no idea if problems were brewing and then the state would explode. Thanks to social media and people blabbering, they can keep an eye on things. So they are content to let people blabber away in their own little private bubbles, which are not so private, but seem private. But she said, they, when they step in and censor is when there is talk of organizing. Mind you, for or against the government. They don't want organizing of any kind. They're happy for the, the isolation of people in the digital sphere. Now, I've been privileged to interview a bunch of authors on China. And in fact, that is the distinction, is the, that organization is the civil liberty that is the most difficult to exercise in, in China. Well, uh, okay, so you've said so much, uh, and I want to say that you've been saying it with your hands. I kind of wanted to. You've you've done all of the things that you described that French and Dutch and Belgian people do. So, uh, so I think there's there's a lot going on um, behind the scenes in the book. Uh, You know, one has to do with the example of your mom. So, Mm. you know, how much of this is about individuals' temperament, capacity? Yes. The disability to find a private moment could be something that is available to somebody as uh, strong-willed uh, as your mother. It could also have to do with the structures under which we live. Some people mm-hmm. with all the strong will in the world still simply won't have that private moment because rather mm-hmm. than being able to step out into a, a beautiful field for a moment, even though there are screaming children inside, there are some people who don't have that, who are, mm-hmm. are basically cogs in the machine and are... Um, and don't and don't have that. So I think this idea of making privacy yourself is interesting. That's a that's a that's a big liberal assumption, right? That that we could make that ourselves. Um, do we need institutions to encourage us? Do we need resources beyond you know what's inside of our mind? And I and I think what your answer is is that we do, and we need it in the form. Um, of community. Uh, so two questions. Yeah. One has to do with the face-to-face piece. Uh, so I, I have one, I have all adult children and mm. one of them is a big fan of Reddit and mm. uh, recently had was in a discussion about the unfairness of how the uh, LSAC allows, uh, makes you register for a test before you get the results of your other. And they banded together and they wrote a script and they all sent it to LSAC and LSAC phoned them individually and reversed the policy. 
So there's an so so I think perhaps for me, uh, you know, uh, a fifties dinosaur, nineteen not nineteen fifties. I'm in my fifties dinosaur. Uh, like that doesn't sound like the public realm or community or discussion or a place mm-hmm. to deliberate. But actually, the subreddit is a place where, in fact, there there is discussion going on about fighting the man and an actual uh, fighting that is effective in moving a big institution to do something. So so. So number one, are we fetishizing the the sort of ancient square of Athens that we shouldn't anyway, because only a few people were there. Uh, the majority of the people were either enslaved formally or enslaved informally or just not included. So so do we have to be careful of that part of the Hannah Arendt, you know, dream? Uh, and, and the second has to do with Okay, what do you want? That was the one thing that I had trouble understanding at the end of the book. And I, I saw you struggling it with it yourself because I think you have these suspicions. So first, this technology thing. Do we really need face-to-face or, or do we have to be careful of coming into it? And then second, what, 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 what's your dream? Well, I, I think you're right. I agree with you. Fetish, I, 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 I wholly admit I probably fetishize it. I, you know, I, um, I have long been a critic of suburbia <laughs> and long for these town, you know, villages with the porches. I, but I, I don't think it's, you know, so that is my dream actually. But I, and I agree with you, Hannah Arendt, you know, points, you know, is eulogizing this society where only a few were able to take part maybe closer to what I have in mind is something like the New England town commons, where you have the centrality of the public realm. And I point out in the book that like, you know, people are still drawn to be in public spaces. The problem is that so many public spaces in America are not really public. Like the mall is actually a private space. You can't really be a public citizen there. And the commons was meant to be a public space, right? Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I think that a, and I saw this during COVID, like people were walking on my street. Like, I think, you know, there is a human need for more than just the backyard. I think we need to be plugged in. And I think there is a need for, one thing I do talk about in the book is the transformation of the mall. Whereas, you know, from these enclosed malls to the, now in America, we see these, they're only marginally better, but they're very telling. You see these little, like they're little main streets that are surrounded by a sea of parking. Well, what's going on here, right? They're now, yes, they're probably thinking about the sm- the white small town, but you know everybody's mingling there. So I, I take that as an as a key as a clue that people want something more than just what suburbia affords. About the digital sphere, listen, I hear you. I I understand the power of dig- of digital culture. I don't. I mean, maybe, I shouldn't say I understand it, but I recognize it. I just I'm I'm worried and I'm and I'm worried on two accounts. Um, I, I was very persuaded by Zainab Tufekci's argument, pointing out how these what she calls these network movements of the early 2010s kind of fizzled, like the Arab Spring and Occupy movement. They ramped up quickly, um, thanks to digital culture and social media, and then they were they were gone. Her argument is they didn't build roots and they didn't have the same kind of organizational structure and history like that the social, civil rights movement. Um, I'm very curious to, to continue to watch how the Black Lives Matter movement works. It's a little bit different, of course, but it is enduring uh, for a variety of reasons. The other thing that really got me negative was the whole experience of the Trump presidency. 
seeing this growing partisanship online and these echo chambers and, and radicalism. And it just made me doubt that, that the, the extent to which digital platforms can sustain, you know, communities where people really see each other in nuanced fashion. You know, it's so easy to go online and just see caricatures of enemies, you know? So what I tried to say in the last chapter is I am open. If you can provide something, I don't think it's Twitter with his 128 characters that doesn't give any nuance, but I'm open to reforms and excited about possible forms of the digital culture that can make it more politically productive. I am like you in my 50s. I don't know what that would look like, you know, but I'm open to it. But my own experience is that, you know, and I'm a big fan of Tocqueville and reading how these town commons work. That is in the American experience. That is in our history. And that's something I think that, you know, we can do and is proven. Um, and then I think I answered both. My dream is, um, yes, my dream is a New England town's common where homes are, you know, where people live closer together. And as I was arguing, I think that is people, many people share that dream. Actually, I think I notice that more and more that, you know, you see this, they call this new traditional development, these, these new housing developments that are built with front porches and, and parks and, and sidewalks. And that indicates that people are tired of the cul-de-sac, you know, they, they want to be plugged in. And of course, digital natives, my students, where are they going? They're moving into the cities. You know, I live your dream. I live in a town that was built for World War One veterans with porches and yep. people who do a lot of talking in the streets and robust communities mm -hmm. and lots of people in the library and uh, community school board meetings with lots of fighting and all sorts of government meetings with lots of fighting. Yeah. But and though it's a diverse community in terms of the people who live here, in fact, it's not a particularly diverse community always in those spaces in which policy is being yeah. made. So mm -hmm. one of the problems that you'd have to deal with with the New England town meeting is that you you can just reinstantiate the same kind of, of hierarchies. And mm -hmm. I think that and I think we are going to have to think about the extent to which for those of us who love face to face conferences, for example, we have to listen, I think, pretty openly to what other colleagues are saying, which is that they were never able to come to the conference because yeah. their institutions don't fund them. And therefore, they got more out of the online conferences, more community, more exchange, more affirmation. So, you know, are we speaking, and you say this somewhere in the book, about a very, very small number of people, but you're talking about privacy. Right. A, a very small number of people who are arguing for privacy. And I and I wonder um, if your your own argument about the public sphere would be open to some of the same concerns that you would have to to work out. I, I was kind of surprised not to see Habermas all over this book. You're 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 you love Arndt. Um, not I'm a not a fan. Well, tell me why, because when you're when you when you're talking, I mean, you don't like Rawls either. So what they're so normally well, I was very yeah. impressed. I've been very impressed by Chantal Mouffe, uh, you know, who argues that and, you know, you see this in Hannah Arendt, the, the importance of agonism. So, you know, I want I want to put in one one comment. My dream community is not dreamy. Right. My dream community is one where 
hopefully you would have diversity. And you're right that this has so often not been achieved in this country, which is rife with segregation. But don't forget that the online community is full of segregation too, right? Everybody's going into their own little realms and they're not seeing each other. So this is the eternal recurring problem. But my dream is that we would live in these communities where we are at, you know, living in, 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 in close proximity and perhaps tense, being tense with one another and arguing. And it, it won't be very utopian, but I don't, I never thought that democracy was supposed to be, right? Democracy is supposed to be rough and tumble in my view, and, and that's fine. Um, you were asking something else. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I think you answered it. You, you said Chantal Mouffe is, is really more where, where you feel there are right. more answers for thinking about what it is we do, like what kind of public oh. spheres that we build. There is a value in, in confrontation and living around tension as opposed to not, <laughs> right? Encountering your own. You know, I thought she, I thought she, she, I thought she provided a remarkable explanation for the Trump phenomenon. You know, for so long, we have to go back five years ago now, think about how Trump comes along and he's saying awful things about Mexicans. And, and, and you're hearing all this racial F that's all of a sudden for so long, we had been living under the narrative that, oh, racism is dead and gone. And you should be ashamed to think these things or say them. And just by putting them underfoot, Moof says, doesn't mean that they're gone. That makes them worse. They need to come out in the open and it's too easy for us to hide in these digital spheres from one another, at least maybe not from target and the government, but from one another. And that really, that, that doesn't make for productive conversation, unfortunately. So your work on guns led mm -hmm. you to the work on surveillance, which mm -hmm. actually led away from surveillance and more yeah. thinking about robust public engagement and citizenship. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I have to say one thing, Susan, I have to credit you with a lot of what I did in this book, because in about my gun book, you, you wrote a review about it and you pointed out that I was very good at saying what freedom is not, but I didn't say what freedom was. So that actually stuck with me. And that was really helpful in this new book. Although I didn't fully complete that. I still think there's more to say about what freedom is. And I think the next logical step would be to try to understand, as you were saying just a minute ago, like where was my next last chapter go? What does a public sphere look like? What does public life look like? Really, you know, what does freedom exercise in the public realm look like? I would really like to think hard about how something like a civil rights movement could be possible again, right? That kind of stuff. I, I don't know. That's so, of course, again, I'm starting with questions, but I uh, think no, that's- No, no, and, and, and obviously, I mean, you've got such brilliant questions in there and, and I'll send you a link. There's a really interesting article by uh, Reva Siegel, who is a Yale law professor and Joseph mm -hmm. Blocker, who's at Duke. And they just wrote something about guns and free speech, which is, oh. uh, which is about how, it, how guns- can affect uh, democratic deliberation. And so we need mm -hmm. to think not just about guns in terms of, of, of public safety, meaning physical harm or threat, mm -hmm. but also to understand that the rights articulated in the Bill of Rights can, can mm -hmm. in fact impact, uh, can be impacted if there are guns in the public sphere. So it, it mm -hmm. kind of dovetail with these things. Well, that was, a, um, I, 
you know, I think your your guns book was the uh, an important. I was saying this to somebody this morning when I was talking about who who I was interviewing. You know, that book was really important because it asked a lot. It didn't answer all of the questions, but it asked a lot of questions that simply were not out there. And I think mm-hmm. um, one of the thing that uh, one of the, the you mentioned Dewey, and mm-hmm. and of course you love Dewey, and and Dewey would like what you're trying to do, which is public facing mm-hmm. scholarship that that reaches out not just to elite audiences, but to, to newspapers that lots and lots of, of people read and get their mm-hmm. information from. Uh, and I think that asking those questions and trying to figure out the answers with people watching them, not having them perfected is essential. Otherwise you just hold on to stuff forever and mm-hmm. it doesn't come out for years and years and years. And I can, I can well, I'm good it. at asking questions. <laughs> um, well, we'll be really excited to see your next work. Um, and uh, I want, before we go, uh, what's a favorite brick and mortar bookstore near your house that we can encourage people to go and physically buy a copy of, of the book? Well, the, in Baltimore, there's one called the Ivy on Falls Road. It's a beauty in an old clapboard house. Okay, I have been there and I can attest that is a gorgeous bookstore. No kidding. Yeah, I love Baltimore. I, I'll tell you when Thank we're you. offline. But um, I want to encourage everybody here to support your local independent bookstores. Try, if you can, um, if it works for you, to go in and buy things. If yeah. you can't, you can use bookshop.org and that will at least order the book from an independent bookstore and keep these important spaces Uh, lively and um, open. Uh, I have had the privilege of talking with Furman de Brandebender about life after privacy, reclaiming democracy in a surveillance society. Uh, It's out from Cambridge University Press in 2020. And Furman, thank you so much for such an open and candid conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It was really great. I love talking to you.